HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is proudly supported by LMT, the hospitality industry's preferred source for tabletop and more. Learn more at lmtprovisions.com. Hey, this is Hannah Forden. I'm the program manager here at Heritage Radio Network. This year, we're celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary, and I want to thank all of our listeners and members for being a part of an incredible year of food radio. We never would have made it this far without all of you. So HRN is now in its summer fun drive, and this is when we turn to you and ask that you make a donation to help ensure a bright future for food radio. Whether you listen to one show or 20, there's a reason why you keep tuning in week after week. All of our content is powered by a small nonprofit, and we rely on your generosity to keep going. Help us keep broadcasting the most thought-provoking, entertaining, and educational conversations happening in the world of food and beverage. So become a member today. To celebrate our 10th anniversary, we have some brand new member gifts available online, so I encourage you to snag your new favorite pizza-themed t-shirt or enamel pin today and show the world how much you love HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate so you can snag your 10th anniversary member swag. And thank you. This is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So today's guests are a farmer and a chef, brought together through their work at River Park, one of Tom Clicchio's restaurants on the East River in Manhattan. I've got River Park executive chef Andrew Smith and farm manager Jonathan Sumner in studio. Thanks, guys, for being here. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So um, this episode came about because I was invited to a farm dinner at River Park. And when I got there, I was really blown away by the scale of the farm. All this time I've been covering agriculture in New York, and I had no idea it was there. (laughs) Um, 
part of it is I think it's just so far east that if you never go over there, you don't kind of stumble upon it. Um, is that a reaction you get a lot? Like, do people see it and are they kind of amazed by the farm? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think the River Park Farm has been one of the best kept secrets in Manhattan for the last eight plus years. Yeah. Is it? I wanted to say that it was the biggest outdoor farm in Manhattan, but I don't know if I could say that <laughs> with total confidence. I I'm think we can sure. say that it's, it's definitely one of the biggest, yeah. um, if not the biggest. Yeah. In, in Manhattan, it is. It's got to be, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so what's the, the origin story behind the farm? I guess um, I want to talk more about the design, and Jonathan, obviously, um, I, I think you should speak to that. But Andrew, you've been at the restaurant since it opened, um, and I understand the farm um, came not long after. So why, like, how did that come about? Whose idea was it to build a farm? So the farm actually came about because um, where we were was kind of newly developed land. Um, and this was back in 2008-ish. Okay. And uh, so we are on the campus of the Alexandria Center. And so they had built their first tower, and um, but the second tower had not been built. And then the, uh, the economy crashed. Mm. And so they put the uh, site into the stalled construction site program. Um, and then we came on property in 2010 and it was just this big open plot of land with uh. a direct view of the Empire State Building. And um, the idea got shopped around of, well, you guys aren't doing anything with it right now. Can we put vegetables on it for the restaurant? And for some odd reason, they were like, oh, that's a great idea. We'll partner with you on it. Mm. And so that's kind of how it came about. Uh, and then... There was a lot of different collaboration with like uh, the the green market folks and some other people and a lot of consultants. Great, um, and I mean the the one of the most striking things about the farm is that it is built entirely in milk crates. Um, was it was it built that way from the beginning? Yes. Yeah. The reason it's built that way is because it was on a stalled construction site and it had to move. Right. So they they were like, all right, so how do we put it in a farm and when when we get an anchor tenant, be able to move it? Right. And so that's where the idea of milk crates have come in. And it's actually the, the farm itself has moved uh, twice now. Actually, when Superstorm Sandy came through, we picked up the whole thing and brought it inside so we didn't lose our farm. Oh, my God. Wait, where inside? Uh, so we have a couple of places on the campus that we brought it into our private dining rooms, and we also brought it into uh, our fast casual Little River. That's incredible. Oh, my gosh. And then you had to put it all back after. And then we put it all back after, yes. Wow. Um, so, Jonathan, can you talk a little bit about that design? So, you know, I... It, it's hard to picture, first of all, I think, if someone's never seen it. So the milk crates are all sort of like in clusters. Can you talk a little bit about how that works um, and and how you actually grow in that system? Absolutely. Um, so it's 6,400 milk crates total. Okay. Um, they're double stacked. So in production, it's 3,200. Um, so that top layer is lined with landscape fabric. We fill it with um, different types of soil, compost, uh, to get the mix that we want. And then for irrigation, we run irrigation along the perimeter of the farm 
and then branch off of that onto each of the beds. So we have them all set up into beds um, with a central walkway. Um, and then it's all, you know, as far as how we grow out of it, it's all about sunlight, figuring out which parts of the farm get the best sunlight. Um, when you were, you were there, I'm sure you noticed that most of the farm was on the north side of a large building. Mm-hmm. So um, managing the sunlight's tricky, and there's all sorts of different things that we do uh, to try and work around that. And the milk crates actually help out a lot in that way um, because it's useful for me to, uh, even though the farm space is stationary now, it's nice for be able, me to be able to move the individual crates and plots around. Mm, so you can literally just pick them up and move them when something isn't getting enough light or... Yeah. Yeah. Or I can start things in the best sunlight and then, you know, early in the spring and then move them to a, a less sunny spot on the farm when it's time for my tomatoes to go in and they want that extra sunlight. Right. Um, and then also with crop rotation, I don't, because I have such spotty sunlight, I can't rotate my crops the way I would normally want to. Um, so we rotate the crates instead, which That's- is a bunch of added labor, but it's a, you know, it's a, it's a solution to a problem. So we're happy to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any big disadvantages to growing in the crates as opposed to just in the ground and soil? Um, there's a few, um, so obviously there's the depth. I'm just working with the set depth. Um, so for root vegetables, things like carrots, um, you know, I'm specifically growing to a pretty set, uh, right. petite size. Um, and then, you know, I do different things to try and create as large of root balls as possible within that space, mm. um, for, you know, larger things, corn, sorghum, tomatoes, stuff like that. Um, actually when I plant my tomatoes, I have them coiled up under the, under the soil, um, so that they can expand and utilize that space as good as possible, um, to try and, you know, deal with the fact that their roots can only exist within this confined space. Right. Um, and then that means, you know, each crate is its own little biosphere, right? So, um, you know, I'm inoculating each crate with different types of fungus and bacteria, um, but they don't, the plants don't share, you know, the soil food web. Um, that's something that I'm having to monitor uh, in each and every little crate. So hmm. I, I say that I'm farming out of 3,200 individual plots of land. Yeah. I mean, and I wonder if like, if you ever had like a disease, like a plant disease, it might actually be a benefit, right? Like maybe they wouldn't, it wouldn't, it definitely could be. Yeah, it definitely could be. Yeah. Huh. Um, so we're going to go to a quick break and we'll be right back with more um, with Jonathan and Andrew and another surprise guest. This episode is proudly supported by LMT the hospitality industry's preferred partner for sourcing tabletop supplies. From their New York City headquarters, LMT provides expertise and uniquely curated products for restaurants and hotels nationwide. Whether it's dinnerware, glassware, and cutlery, to small wares and equipment, LMT's approach to tasteful design and product knowledge is simply unmatched. Learn more at lmtprovisions.com and listen to founder Morgan Tucker on episode four of Opening Soon on Heritage Radio Network.
right, we're back. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. This is Lisa Held. I'm in studio with Jonathan Sumner and Andrew Smith from River Park. And over the break, we were joined by Zach Pickens, who runs Farm Tornant Upstate. Zach, are you there? I am. How are you doing? Good. Um, so so glad that you were able to join. Um, and yeah, <laughs> so your connection was you ran um, River Park's farm before Jonathan, correct? Yeah, I was a uh, founding farm manager in 2011, and uh, I was there for six growing, five growing. Great. And um, yeah, and then moved up here and started a slightly larger farm. <laughs> How big is it? Uh, we're farming on three acres now in Montgomery, New York, um, on land that we lease from Windfall Farms, which uh, a lot of your listeners will know from the Union Square Green Market. Great. Um, and tell us a little bit about what you're growing up there. Uh, we're growing, you know, it, it's a lot of what we're growing is a continuation of, of what we were doing at River Park and the conversations we had years ago about what would be smart crops to be growing in collaboration and, you know, kind of things that we always wanted to do but didn't have enough space for. Um, you know, so we've got like a really good crop of potatoes this year and it's a specific variety called Adirondack Red. Uh, that that actually I'm growing specifically for Andrew for River Park, um, and you know growing squash on a larger scale and harvesting a lot of squash blossoms and we grow a lot of salad greens and and tomatoes and you know, it's a pretty diverse crop list but but you know it's really it really is a continuation of the work that we were doing at River Park just on a larger scale. Right. So you guys have this little ecosystem. It's like you've got the farm in the city right at the restaurant. Then you've got. Zach upstate growing what you can't grow. Um, talk, um, I guess maybe Andrew, um, can you talk a little bit about how you all work together in terms of deciding what to grow and what will be on the menu? Uh, it's a very collaborative effort. Um, it's a lot of conversations. It's a lot of flipping through seed catalogs and going, mm. ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> you know, it's when we get into planning season, which is usually around January, mm-hmm. um, it's just conversations okay what worked well last year what what uh what didn't work so well and what are some things we want to we want to play around with so you know each one of us bring different kind of passion projects to the the table um over the course of the season so we'll see things and it's like oh i want to try that or oh can i get that you know like zach alluded to uh with the anirondack red potatoes you know something that i picked up on my day off at a farmer's market and I was like, these are great. Mm. And I was like, I want those for my Thanksgiving. We do a big Thanksgiving every year. And I was like, Zach, I want you to grow these. So I have them for Thanksgiving. And that's specifically what they're for. So, you know, as a chef, I'm very, very privileged in that way that I can sit there and have a conversation with somebody that I've known for years and say, Hey, can you grow that for me? And I'd be like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, day to day, is it like, Jonathan, are you coming to Andrew and saying like, oh, hey, this is ready to be harvested. Like you need to put this on the menu tomorrow. Like, I mean, you're right there. So you kind of have that immediate access. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's always an ongoing conversation um, daily. And so I normally I try to give him a little more heads up. (laughs) Not like tomorrow. Um, (laughs) Everything's to a plan. Yeah. Um, So we have an expectation of you know, when things are going to ripen up, how long they're going to take. Um, it obviously doesn't always work to plan. So sometimes I'll 
you know, say, all of this is ready right now, it's perfect, I have to harvest it all, and then he has to find creative ways to um, either put it up and store it somehow, or use it fresh um, and, and, and get rid of it however, however he can. <clears throat> right. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a, we were talking about this a little before um, the break, but um, I think it's, it's a really interesting thing that, um, Jonathan, you were a farmer in a rural setting, um, and then you came in and started running um, River Park farm and then Zach you were running River Park farm and now you're upstate um doing the rural farm thing um is it like I guess like both of you like did do your skills translate to both like did did you have to learn a lot of new things or like what was that transition like Zach you want to take that (laughs) yeah it it was pretty wild because I I grew up in Ohio you know, like surrounded by corn, and mm-hmm. then I didn't actually start farming until I moved to Brooklyn. It doesn't make <laughs> any sense at all. Um, but, but you know, so yeah, I, I really, like, I learned to farm in an urban environment because that's what I was excited about was, like, figuring out to, how to solve, you know, th- this, this problem that needed a creative solution, right? And then, you know, farming in the country, not that it's, you know, there's always something to learn or, you know, in a rural environment, there's always something to learn, something to do better and different, but, like, there's a lot of people that already done it. You know, but right. it, it, I had to, I had to be reminded what pests were and what weeds are and stuff like that, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> managing weeds and managing pests that we don't have in the city. And, um, you know, so there, yeah, there was a pretty steep learning curve, but I had a, I had, I had a little bit of a, I had a mentorship with Morse Pitts, the farmer here at Windfall in 2015 that really allowed me to like learn by doing and, 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 and fail you know, fail, but not in a way that actually affected our business or anything. So I, I learned a lot that year and had to get readjusted to, you know, farming in the ground. And, and you know, I heard Jonathan talking about the soil, you know, soil science in the containers a little bit. Like, you know, I had to relearn how to farm in the soil. Right. You know, how to grow food in the soil. And it's totally different in a, in a milk crate and in, in engineered medium than it is in, in an, a healthy, alive soil. Oh, what, what's the medium that you use in the milk crates? Well, so we start with, uh, it's about 50% of like a, a sterile mix, peat-based, um, and then it's, the rest of it's compost. So it's, mm. it's, uh, it's loose, holds a lot of water, um, but we introduce all of the life to the crates um, through compost and, and different amendments. Right. So do you, and you had, that was, I imagine, a learning process for you. So did Zach teach you sort of that system or how did, how was that transition for you? Yeah, Zach, I mean, has obviously for the River Park Farm is such a unique growing environment and milk crate farming is such a unique thing that a lot of um, the knowledge that I came with didn't necessarily apply very well. Mm -hmm. Um, And really there's, you know, it's such a, such a blessing to have somebody who's actually done that before because traditional farming knowledge just doesn't really apply as much. So, um, to be able to, to, to know and be able to consult, um, someone with, you know, the only person with experience doing what I'm doing, uh, super helpful. So he's helped in a lot of different ways, but, um, you know, with the soil, it's just trying to find something that's going to be super productive, um, and be able to manage the water well, because when you're farming out of milk crates, um, if you overwater, it can leach all your nutrients out of the soil, mm. um, but they also 
are porous on all sides so they can dry out really quick. Um, so really dialing in the texture of the soil is, is one of the more important parts. Um, and that's something that I've been working on and um, getting it down pretty good. Right. Has, have any of you seen anyone else farming in milk crates this way? I've never seen it before. I know of one <laughs> other. Um, there's a milk crate farm in Fenway Park in oh, Boston. Cool. Um, have you been there? I have not. <laughs> you guys should take a field trip and go visit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a nonprofit, or it's an organization up in Boston that runs that farm and one on top of a roof of a hospital as well mm. that is farming in milk crates. Yeah. Cool. Other than that, no, I don't know of anybody else really doing it at this at this at the scale of River Park. Right. Um, and Zach, you brought up pests. I'm curious, um, Jonathan or or Zach, in the city, do you get pests on the farm that you have to deal with? Uh, you get all of the same insect pests. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Um, I was hoping when I took the job that maybe that you know I wouldn't have to deal with as many of the <laughs> yeah. insect pests. Uh, and then quickly realized that what I was doing was creating the only habitat within a pretty large space for uh, all of those insects. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, and there's not a whole lot of natural habitat um, for beneficial insects. So that's something that we introduce regularly. Um, and then also try to construct habitat that um, they might enjoy sticking around in. Right. Um, but yeah, it's all the same, all the same bugs. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> same bugs everywhere. Um, no deer or groundhogs, though. No deer. No deer. <laughs> no deer, no groundhogs. <laughs> right. Not many squirrels or e- either, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so between River Park Farm and Farm Turnout, Andrew, how much of the restaurant's produce are you able to get from them? And Like, how much do you need to add? It, well, it varies greatly with the time of year, right. obviously. Um, the things that... I mean, we have a very large organization, so it's really hard to pinpoint Mm. on which, uh, what is the percentage. Uh, But the thing is, we try to focus in on specific things. So we're going to get specific things from Zach. We're going to get specific things from Jonathan. So like all of our lettuce mix is coming from Zach. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of uh, pretty much all of our herbs are coming from Jonathan. Um, So it's specific things that we get from them. And then we have other companies and... um, farms and things like that would that we use to kind of plug in those holes so it's their they are there they everybody plays their part right and does the this sort of um farm adjacent ethos is it present on the rest of the menu like are you buying local grains local meat yeah as much as possible yeah as much as possible you know uh tom's very committed to you know natural meats antibiotic hormone freeze uh we try to engage as many local people as we possibly can mm-hmm. um you know and it's as we identify products you know it's like oh somebody come came to me a couple of weeks ago with rice that's being grown in jersey and i was like wow that's pretty wow, cool that's cool you yeah. know and so we were like all right well what can we do with that mm-hmm. so it it's just as these products come along that we're going to introduce them into what it is we do i mean the menu is very much centered around the produce the produce you know i always like to say that i work um kind of 
counter to most chefs. Most chefs start off with a duck dish. I don't start off with a duck dish. I start off, start off with a carrot dish. Mm. And then I work my way backwards. And I say, okay, here's, here's what we're going to... This is what we know is going to be coming in at this time of year. So what are we going to be doing with our eggplants? What are we going to be doing with our fennel? What are we going to be doing with this herb, that herb? And then we build the dishes around that. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Can you... Is there a dish you can think of that, um, this is, I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but that like kind of showcased something produced from River Park Farm and something from Farm Tornot? Uh, there is uh, actually one very specifically that I have on right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a red sucrine salad. So it's basically a wedge salad. Um, but um, Zach is setting aside red sucrines for me. Uh, and then our uh, bush beans have just started to come in. So we have dragon tongues and amethysts, and those are all coming in right now. And then we have all these wonderful herbs, you know, the chocolate mint, the emerald gold mint, the nasturtium, the basils. I always say basils as in plural because there's how many varietals? Uh, it's seven on the farm this year. Seven varietals, oh and each one brings a different flavor profile. So we're taking all of those things uh, and just very simply dressing it with a little bit of olive oil and lemon juice, and then making a yogurt and buttermilk dressing with dried herbs from the farm, fresh herbs from the farm, and a little bit of poppy seeds that's drizzled over the top and a crouton. And, you know, I kind of take the stance of my job is not to mess up their hard work. Right. (laughs) That's amazing. And that's a lot of varieties of basil. And it reminded me, I didn't actually ask you, Jonathan, like how how many different things are you growing at River Park Farm? Throughout the season, it's roughly a hundred varieties of probably 30 or 40 types, um, fruits, vegetables, herbs, flowers. Right. So pretty big mix. Yeah. And you had corn there too right when I which was surprising when I saw it because it's just so much bigger than ever you know like you don't expect a crop like that in the crates yeah so um growing the corn for multi-purpose crop for me um so all the corn is laid out uh kind of along the the fence line so where there's a large drop off and we're pretty exposed to the water um and there's on that side of the farm there aren't any large buildings nearby so my biggest obstacle on the farm, uh, on River Park Farm, is the wind. Mm. Um, it's very exposed and kind of almost operates like a wind tunnel sometimes. So creating barriers um, to protect other crops is something that's really important for me. So I really focus on trellising a lot of items um, to create wind breaks. But along that fence line, um, I was growing corn mostly as a wind block. Um, but that's also something I think uh, it, it's all... a variety specific for popping mm, cool. um, and I love the narrative behind popcorn uh, corn obviously being one of the more subsidized crops right um, you know when you pour popcorn out of a jar into your pan there's no reason for you to think that any two of those kernels are from the same plant the same farm um, you know the same region of any state um, and so when you have your an ear of popping corn and it's dried out and you just rub those kernels off into the pan um, you know, just knowing that that all came from the same place. Yeah. Um, it's a really cool way to highlight the narrative of local food. Um, and that's one of those things chef was talking earlier, um, about how, you know, we're all, we all have our own ideas and bring different experiments to the table. Um, 
so you know popcorn uh you know to my knowledge didn't have much of a place in fine a fine dining atmosphere um but <laughs> chef jumped right in and um has popcorn on a pork belly dish right now and we're just waiting for mine to ripen up so um it's cool we're all we all push each other in different ways to do different things yeah that's really cool um Zach, I want to ask you a little bit about um, setting up your farm. Um, I, I talk to a lot of um, farmers that are getting started upstate on, um, you know, small uh, with a few acres trying to do, you know, organic farming and, and make it work economically. And I know it can be really hard. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that was like for you getting the farm up and running um, from an economic perspective? Sure. Yeah. Um so, I mean, first of all, like the foundation of our business is relationships with chefs. And these are like mm. relationships that I, you know, I have with Crafted Hospitality. That's the majority of our, our business. And it's also relationships with other chefs in the city that we, that we, that I've known, you know, from living there for years. And, and really what, there's so much insecurity in farming that I wanted to take the economic side out as much as possible, you know, like mm. I, I really want to try to like, I want to build these relationships so that it's, it's a better product for everybody involved, but also so that like we have kind of our business baked in a little bit, you know? And so that was the goal going in is like, let's try to set things up as much as possible at the beginning of the season so that we're not sitting there holding, you know, 15,000 pounds of lettuce that we can't sell or something like that, you know? Right. And, um, so that was that was a big that was a big first step for us is like thinking about our businesses like uh, you know standing orders and setting things up well in advance um, and that allows me in a lot of ways to to plant things differently like I don't I try not to overplant anything because I I, ex- I know what to expect when it comes to harvest time in terms of what we can sell and what we can't. Right. Um, so that we can be a lot more efficient in that way. Um, yeah. And, and then, you know, starting the farm, we were really fortunate to, I, I went through, uh, Grow NYC's, uh, a farm roots training program. Right. And that's, it's a business planning, uh, class for young farmers. And we did that, uh, my wife and I did that in 2015. And, um, and then that's how we formally got connected with Morse. And I did a mentorship with Morse in 2015, and then he offered land to us to, to start our business because uh, he's interested in getting more young farmers, you know, up uh, up and running, and and doing so in a way that that again can kind of uh, reduce the economic risk. So I was able to borrow his equipment for the first mm. couple of years, and and you know I was using land that was already set up and had infrastructure, and I didn't have to like build a walk-in cooler, and I didn't have to drill a well and everything like that. So right. that was a tremendous like leg up. Um, yeah, I mean it's really scary. I mean, it, like I said, it, you know, we, there's enough you know insecurity in farming. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the fact that we kind of scratched those off the list, we're we're just really. We're really, really fortunate in that way. Right. Do Do you meet other farmers um, in the Hudson Valley that have relationships like the one you have with River Park, where like they're growing almost exclusively for one restaurant group, um, or do you think that's pretty rare? I it, it's 
it's definitely being done. I don't know of anybody else like in the New York City area that's doing it. I mean, other than you know Stone Barns growing for Blue Hill, right. um, but I know Prosser Farm out in Washington is growing a lot of food for for the Douglas restaurants out there uh, in Seattle, and um, you know there's a, there's a few others around the around the country for sure. But but um, yeah, I, I'm not familiar with anybody else doing it at the kind of the way that we are here in the New York city area. Right. Um, That makes sense. So what do you guys all do in the winter? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I, I still have a restaurant to run. Um, (laughs) Where do you get your produce? (laughs) But the, the things that we do is during the season when we, when Jonathan goes, Oh, I have a whole lot of this is we do a lot of preserving. I was going to ask you that. That's Um, great. So that's one of the things about having these relationships that it's forced me as a chef to be more creative Mm -hmm. and to think about things differently. So when we're, when we're going in and actually the, uh, a way that a lot of this got started was one of the first years we had a huge basil crop. It mm. was just, I, I have no idea how much it was. And it was just like, here, we're clear cutting the farm. You have this to do with. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> you can't just serve dishes with basil. Correct. Like, yeah. So we, we had uh, an old proofing box kicking around in the kitchen that we never really used. Uh, and, just turned it on and didn't put any water in it. And we started loading in sheet trays of herbs and started to dry them. Mm. Um, so, and then we end up with all of these different powders and uh, dried herbs. So uh, it has kind of allowed me the opportunity to kind of take some of these flavors from the summer and move them into the colder months. Mm-hmm. So I can take, um, I can take uh like the basils, for example, it's we get all these different varietals in it. And like there's uh, blue spice basil, opal basil, Thai basil, and they all have these very unique flavors. And when you put them together in this mix, it's just like a, a flavor bomb. And so we'll take that. And I have a, um, a pesto that I make where with uh, butternut squash, where we take a traditional pesto, kind of flip it on its head, uh, bake out the squash with a holy heck load of... Um, the dried basils on it and then pumpkin seeds uh the the basils more of the dried basils chunk parmesan a little bit of uh olive oil and we make a pumpkin pumpkin basil pesto out of it Mm. Uh, and then that gets tossed with a uh, a a zucca pasta and then we also have a microgreens um program that we do indoors Mm. and so you know they're downstairs growing different things like hydroponic uh it's it's just it's in soil and trays under lights oh interesting yeah cool so we can get like i can have little micro basils and things like that to finish and garnish the dish with but it lends to a very unique flavor profile that you know you don't see anywhere else so we do that um we do like hot sauces pickling um, different things like that. And it's, you can take these, these different things that you were in the summer and interpret the cold weather produce in different ways. 
You know, right. I mean, we're still getting certain amounts of cellar vegetables and mm-hmm. things like that. I mean, obviously, as the winter wears on, some of that gets depleted down. Right. But, I mean, that is the, the way that we really try to bring all the stuff together. Right. And what about the, the River Park Farm itself? Like, do you have to, do you leave the crates there or do you have to put them inside or? Yeah, I leave the crates uh-huh. out all winter. Um, so, you know, the cold winter or the cold season start with lots of cleanup, mm-hmm. um, you know, already starting to prep the crates for the next season. Um, you know, if I have uh, any cover crops going, um, I'll, you know, obviously I'll leave the, let those go, but then I'll start to turn them in at a certain point. Um, so the farm pretty much stays stationary mm. um, and I don't mess with it too much aside from cleaning it all up and getting it ready for the next season. Um, but for me in the winter months, um, first, that's the only time of year I take some time off. <laughs> a vacation. Um, <laughs> so that's nice. But there's so much planning that goes into all of this. Yeah. Um, you know, from coordinating with Zach and Chef to figure out who's going to grow what and when we want it. Um, you know, and, and then I, we're selecting varieties uh, and then obviously pretty comprehensive plan for mapping it out and when to plant what and successions of each thing. So there's plenty of, uh, there's plenty of work to do in the winter for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And Zach, I imagine you're doing lots of planning in the winter as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that was something that, that really I got in the habit of doing at river park because it was such a valuable space that we wanted to maximize as much as possible that it really was in my interest to like make sure I had it planned out well in advance and doing really tight crop rotations and, and succession planning and everything. So that was a good thing for starting our farm up here now. Cause I was already used to, you know, getting that planning done and, and trying to be really, you know, maximizing the utility of the space. Um, we also, in addition, you know, being, kind of outside of the city we have more space that we could do off-season growing so we have a high tunnel Hmm. up now a 30 by 96 foot high tunnel and we're about to add a second one uh so you know we we have the ability up here to to be producing through the winter now as well right um what what can you grow in the high tunnels in the winter last year we just planted the whole thing with mosh um just a salad green Mm. that I really particularly love and is really, really cold hardy. Um, and, and that's like what people that, can't get in the winter and here, I mean, greens, right? Yeah. Like that's kind of amazing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was our first year at the high tunnel and I decided to have a kind of a hands off year where I'm going to put, I'm going to put a salad green in there that will not die. You know? <laughs> like it is very, very cold hardy and it doesn't, it's not, it's not very hands on. So that was, that was a good first step into doing winter production. Right. That's great. Um, so we have to wrap up. Um, one thing I wanted to ask, can people visit the farm? Is that possible? Uh, yes. So mm-hmm. um, people are welcome to visit River Park Farm. Um, it's not open to the public. Uh, you can approach it. Um, but, it, you know, if any time that I'm there or um, if anybody wants to uh, schedule a tour. They can reach out to me. Um, it's jonathan.sumner at riverparknyc.com. Um, and I'm happy to give tours. Um, also, you know, guests that come and eat at the restaurant um, are also able to get tours. Um, so, yeah. 
Great. Yeah, all the dining room managers have been trained on on giving tours and that. Perfect. So if, some, if you are eating there and you just ask. Yeah. Um, yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you guys all for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. We'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.